This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you as always. Um, you have no doubt heard already about the ruling that came down last night that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out of San Francisco, very liberal, known to be liberal Court of Appeals. They ruled against the Trump administration, as you have no doubt heard. And when we look at this uh, and we apply very basic legal scrutiny to the situation, it is clear this is a terrible ruling. <laughs> this is about as as bad a judicial ruling, I think, as you're going to see. And we're going to be joined later by Andy McCarthy. He can also he can give you his truly expert uh, opinion on this one. Uh, but I, I read through the ruling last night, and there's so much that's wrong with it. Um, my understanding also, I, I didn't check this out, but I think I saw this on Twitter, which you, know, you shouldn't base things you see on social media. Fake news alert! Uh, but that the Ninth Circuit of all the circuits is the one that is most most often overturned by the Supreme Court. Whether that's true or not, and I would assume it's true, based on the ruling I saw last night, uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. This was policy in search of a legal rationale. It is a obviously a defeat for the Trump administration, at least in the short term. And I I have to say this this really opens up a number of a number of I, I want to take this first. Let, let me look at the merits of this with you now. And then we'll get into the politics of it a little bit and and then we'll go from there. Um I'll also talk to you about what I think this shows. Uh, there's sort of the immediate politics, and then there's the long-term narrative politics of this. But let me first get into the ruling. So a few things. First of all, if, if a state can now sue on behalf of immigrants as a group with the idea that their state universities, this is what they put. I, I couldn't believe how flimsy this was, but this is what they put in the decision. If states can sue on behalf of immigrants because they, the states claim 
that they are losing a, an important benefit to their university system as a result of not having access to this immigrant pool, in this case from, from seven of, what, 200, uh, approximately 200 and something countries in the world. Um, how many, you know, important question, how many countries, I'm going to ask this on air because I want to know, how many countries are there uh, and the answer I get, oh, 195. I said approximately 200. Psh, that's right, Buck. That's right. High five yourself. So there's almost 200 countries in the world. Seven of them are, <clears throat> seven of them were affected by this temporary ban. But the states sued on behalf of the immigrants or would-be immigrants or visitors from this group. And it, it is just amazing that that's, that that now gives them, that they have standing. You can't just sue the government for anything. You have there has to be some. You have to have some interest in it. Otherwise, I could just sue Obama for being the worst president ever. You know, I'm just I'm suing Obama because he's a bad president. Well, you don't have standing. You can't just you can't drag the president into court into federal court because you think he's a bad president. I mean, I know that's a silly example, but it, it does make the point. You know, you have to. Okay, I'm going to sue Obama because he had the Department of Justice lock me up without any judicial process whatsoever. Oh, no, okay, you, that's a real harm. <laughs> that, that, then you have standing, right? Well, in one case, you have standing. In one case, you don't. And if they don't, give you habeas cor if they don't give you habeas corpus and the ability to challenge your detention and judicial review, clearly you would have a harm, although if it ever got to that point in this country, I'm not sure the judicial process would work out for you that well either. But I digress. Okay, so uh, we, we, look at this we look at this review. It's not that long. It's about 30 pages. So if you want to flip through it, if you have the time today, or you can just listen to me. I'll tell you what you need to know. That's, that's my job, I suppose. Uh, you look through this ruling, and the standing issue was pretty ridiculous. Um, that they have, quote, proprietary interests traceable to the states now. States of Washington and Minnesota have proprietary interests traceable to the executive order. I mean, the executive order stops people from seven countries from going to these states. That now gives those states the right to sue the federal government and challenge immigration. Immigration is supposed to be left to the federal government. In fact, immigration has been given so much deference in the past to the federal government and its whims that states that wanted to help the federal government enforce its immigration laws, i.e. Arizona, uh, they, have been, they were told by the federal government, no, even though you're trying to help, we don't want your help. That was under the Obama administration. Stop helping us. That's what the Obama administration's Department of Justice said to the state of Arizona. Don't help us. We don't, we don't want the help. This is our thing. Well, now you have states that are suing the federal government saying uh, this isn't just your thing. It hurts us. So we get to have we get to have a say in this. And I think for a lot of people, they look at this and they think to themselves, well, this is just completely preposterous. And, and, and it is. Uh, this is a very this is a very poor decision um, that was made here by the night. But this is not surprising either. I've been saying all week on radio, this is how this is going to go. And I think everybody who's paying pretty close attention to this was of the same mind. But that the uh, state attorneys could serve as uh, advocates for future immigrants is where does that end? Think about that for a moment. So I'm a, I'm a state attorney for New York. Uh, I, I don't like the Republican administration's policy about immigration you know i i think that instead of a million legal immigrants a year we should have two million legal immigrants here in this country and new york would get a, a good share of that so i'm going to sue the federal government now usually see the, the, the standing is a really important issue because otherwise 
the opportunities for meddling and overwhelming the courts and also just using the court system as a weapon, they're endless. If a state can sue and and go through the judicial process against the federal government, you know, use remember, keep on, they're both playing with taxpayer dollars, so they don't care. But in, in, if they can be denied standing, well, then at least a judge can dismiss this right away and say, look, you can't, this is a waste of everybody's time. You can't do it. If they can get standing for whatever they want, well, then they can sue for whatever they want. And then you got to go through a whole trial process. It has to go through the courts. It has to be arbitrated through the legal, the legal system. I mean, think about where that ends. There's already enough over-lawyering in this country of every little thing. Now you're going to have blue states that just want to keep that want to sue a Republican administration. Now, I know you're going to say, but Buck, states do sue. Yes, they sue, but they have to sue for, for specific reasons. Right. A state saying, hey, federal government, you can't tell us at the state level that we have to expand Medicaid or else we're going to pull all Medicaid funding away from you. The state's clearly being harmed. There. The state has a real interest there. That's that's a, a legitimate lawsuit to bring against the federal government for a state. You know, there, there is a Tenth Amendment issue there. You, you can raise that. OK, uh, we don't like your immigration policy because we want super smart immigrants from these countries to work in our university system. Sorry, that, 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 that doesn't fly. If that flies, then anything flies. Right, this this starts to look a little bit like Wickard v. Filburn, where which is the root of really all progressive judicial evil. Um, and it has to do with you know, what is it, growing wheat and regulating interstate commerce, even if commerce doesn't go across states, because commerce has an effect on commerce that does go across states, you can regulate all commerce within a state. That's the very short version of Wickard v. Filburn. And the the federal government under the Commerce Clause has just run amok with that one. Amok being a term, by the way, we use from the Moral War, the U.S.-Philippine War, uh, the turn of the 20th century. Side note, amok, boondock, these are things that come from I believe Tagalog, but it comes from the U.S.-Philippine War, the Moro War, M-O-R-O. Side note. Okay. Um, What else do I have for you here? A few things. Okay. So that's very important to point out. That the standing issue, I know it sounds a little like womp, 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 womp. It's a little bit of a, um, is that the parents from, yeah, from Charlie Brown. I was thinking Bobby's World, but that's them. Oh, yeah, don't you know? Uh, But no, it's a little bit of a womp, 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 womp. But it actually matters a whole lot because if the courts start to just give standing to states, especially under this Republican administration, this Trump administration, to sue for whatever, I mean, it's just going to be one endless string of lawsuits that get through the that go through the problem. Maybe they lose, but you know they got to go through the process. At least if you don't have standing, it's like you're donezo right away. Okay, so the standing issue really matters, and that they were granted standing in the sense that the state attorneys are able to now advocate. Remember, they're paid by U.S. taxpayers. They're, at, they're able to advocate for foreigners as a result of this night. They're able to, for future foreigners. Not, we're not even talking about people applying to be U.S. citizens, people that just want a visa to come here. So, now, so what's the difference between the, where is the province, where does the province of the states end when it comes to immigration and the federal government begin? I, I don't know. Under this order, it, you know, your guess is as good as my team could be anything. OK, so the issue of reviewing the legality of the order, this also came up in the decision. The Trump team took the unfortunate from an optics perspective, took the position that, well, this is not even reviewable by a court. Now, of course, courts with activist judges in particular are always going to say to them, are always going to say, 
No, no, we can review anything. Thanks very much. That's what we do here. We can choose to review any aspect of federal law and federal policy that we want. And that was unnecessarily goading. Uh, I'm not saying that it means that what the judges did on this issue was right at all. I'm just saying it added fuel to this fire. Um, usually the federal government, and particularly the, uh, the commander-in-chief, um, is, is due a lot of deference on immigration policy. And specifically here, there is a statute under federal law that was passed by the Congress that says that, that, says that the, um, the commander-in-chief can bar any class of, of alien, non-U.S. citizen, for any national security reason he deems necessary. And in the decision this came up, the, the process, uh, or in the context of this paragraph, although courts owe considerable deference to the president's policy determinations with respect to immigration and national security, it is beyond question that the federal judicial uh, judiciary retains the authority to adjudicate constitutional challenges. So they're saying, look, we can review this. We'll give you deference, but we can review this. Okay, so they, they said that they have a right to review this. Um, what really goes bonkers, though, off the wall, um, because I, I agree that they have a they have a right to review it. But in the review, they should have come up with, OK, well, this is this is beyond our this is beyond our bailiwick and we have to give deference to the executive. That's not what they did. But what really drives me bonkers is that the court more or less asserted in this whole process that there are due process rights for illegal aliens. Um, that's just completely insane. Uh, if, if you have state attorneys in this country that are able to sue on behalf of due process rights for illegal aliens to come to this country, or not illegal, well, legal or illegal aliens, but any aliens, the states of Minnesota and Washington bringing this suit and then having it upheld, at least at this juncture, it could, of course, be overturned by the Supreme Court. And we'll get into what comes next when we got uh, Andy McCarthy come on up here in a few minutes. But this whole idea that uh, they can act on behalf of non-U.S. citizens, this is insane. These, they, 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 they shouldn't be uh, confronting the federal government over the, over the rights of non-citizens to travel to this country. What, what due process rights when it comes to entering the United States does a non-citizen have? The answer is supposed to be whatever due process rights the United States government through its treaties with other countries and through the executive branch decides that they have. That's it. This isn't the due process rights for your detention in this country. This isn't the due process rights for are you accused of a crime? And this is the due process rights of do you get to come here? The answer is no, you don't have a right. But see, this exposes the fundamental fault line between the way the right thinks and the left thinks in this country. The left, through decades now of this progressive indoctrination, has really begun to take the position that the U.S. government should make almost no distinction between the rights of citizens and non-citizens. This is also why illegal immigration is such a hot-button issue now, this is also why so many Americans are fed up with being constantly fed this line that illegal immigrants are like the fabric of this society and they do the jobs Americans won't do and, and we should extend ourselves to them and they should get access to taxpayer-funded benefits and all of that. It's just pushing towards this notion 
that really we, what we need to have is, and I, I know this is this starts to sound a little crazy, but this is how the left thinks about this stuff. That it's just for reasons of uh, of process right now that we have to continue with this notion of America and U.S. citizens, and we're not quite there yet. When there's one government that rules over all of us, one sort of world global government of you know a, a UN style committee of all the different countries represented, they know that they don't have that yet. But if they could have it, they would. And anything they can do that fits into that ideological framework, they will. In the meantime, they know we're not there yet, but they wish we were. And if they can do anything that looks like we're getting closer to that, they'll do it. You have state attorneys suing on behalf, suing the federal government in order uh, on the basis of due process rights for alien non-U.S. citizens, including those who would come here illegally, their travel rights to the United States. They have no travel rights to the United States, or at least they didn't until yesterday. There's no such thing. You know, guess what, everybody, if I want to go to North Korea, which might seem like a strange thing, but it'd be kind of interesting. If I want to go to North Korea and the North Korean government says, we don't want you here. Do you know what my recourse is? Zero. I have zero recourse. I don't have the like whiny. Like, no. But if I want to go to the EU and they think I'm a human rights abuser, Buck the Terrible, he is known all around the world as the human rights abuser, whatever. Guess what? My recourse is zero. I mean, I can try to petition them, but there, there's no legal right for me to go to some other country, right? The only real rights I have, in a tr- in the true rights that I have, other than natural law rights, and I'm not talking about that, but from a, from a government perspective, attach because I'm a U.S. citizen, and I'm entitled to certain processes as a U.S. citizen. But everyone around the world is not entitled to those processes, Unless you take the word of the Ninth Circuit here, and, and then what is the difference between a citizen and a non-citizen in terms of their rights, other than we're the chumps who actually have to pay taxes and obey federal law? Long term, I know right now this is, and I'm running out of time here because I find this a fascinating subject. Long term, this is not a defeat for the Trump administration. And I think they recognize that. Right now it looks bad. They roll this out. It's a debacle, all that. But guess what? What we've seen is that the left is willing to throw the Constitution under the bus and to completely dismiss the distinctions made between citizens and non-citizens. People are going to remember that. All right, I got to hit a break, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours. 
and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Oh man, you know, I, I just gotta say to you, I, I had this. Uh, I saw this tweet yesterday on, on CNN uh, from a CNN reporter about how this uh, exercise class owner in D.C. found out that Ivanka Trump had signed up for a class under a, a fake name, obviously, because she doesn't want to be harassed. And then this woman wrote, of course, the grandstanding Facebook post, but how because she needs to defend her client, she's going to request a meeting with Ivanka. And, and I'm just like, you know, and, and of course, when I, when I point out, do you think that she really do you do, do these idiots really think that the first daughter, what does she have to have a meeting? She can't buy milk. She can't walk down the street without somebody demanding a meeting or requesting a meeting. Do we think that's cool? And they go, oh, don't be a snowflake. I'm not being a snowflake. People are just being jerks. You don't get to just harass people in their day-to-day life because you don't like their politics. I know the left thinks that that's okay, but it's really not. It's not the time or the place. She wants to take an exercise class. Just back off. But it's amazing how stupid people are on this point. And I'm seeing the Twitter responses from just moron after moron. One of them writes for the New Republic, so he writes for dozens of people read his writing. And he's, he goes, oh, don't be a snowflake. First of all, I'm not being a snowflake about anything. And second of all... Anybody who defends an exercise class owner uh, saying that she's going to bother, because it is a bother, because Ivanka, I'm sure, does not want to be lectured by some woman she doesn't know about her father's politics because she happens to be in the same general vicinity as her. It's rude. There is such a thing as rudeness. There is such a thing as being a jerk. Not everything can be defended now with, oh, don't be a snowflake. You know, This is not Ivanka putting herself out there and someone else in a, in a normal forum responding. This is, can she have like a a few minutes to just be a normal person without some leftist fool trying to bother her? I I just, anybody who doesn't understand this is a straight up moron. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. All right, team, we're joined now by our friend Andy McCarthy. He is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a contributing editor to National Review. Andy, great to have you. Buck, how are you? I'm all right. I mean, I, I the decision that came down last night was more or less what I expected, but it was also a little worse even than I expected. I've gone over some of it with the, with the team, Andy, but I, I just wanted to give you the floor and tell us what what is going on here with this decision. Well, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, Buck, we used to say that if you pick the country up by the eastern seaboard, all the loose stuff rolls to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and unfortunately, I think we we saw that uh, in this opinion, which is really in many ways very outrageous. But I think it it really boils down to two questions or two issues. One is 
there was a time in this country for two plus centuries where it was understood in our law, in our constitutional jurisprudence, that the political branches of government had plenary supreme authority over matters of national security, particularly that involved potential foreign threats to the homeland. And it was well understood, as the Supreme Court held uh, in 1948 uh, in a case called Chicago and Southern against Waterman that was written by uh, Justice Robert Jackson, the legendary Robert Jackson, who was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. Um, Jackson explained that on matters of foreign relations and national security, the judiciary is out of its ken. Uh, and that in our system, these issues are wholly committed to the branches of government whose officials are accountable to the people whose lives are at stake, and that the judiciary shouldn't and doesn't have any role in them. And that was pretty much what the understanding was. And interestingly, that case came around the same time that the law on which President Trump relied in his executive order was enacted by Congress. And if you look at that law carefully, what it says uh, is that uh, Congress is giving the president the authority to exclude classes of aliens if, and this is the key phrase, in his judgment, uh, allowing them into the country would be detrimental. In his judgment meant very clearly that this was a decision left to the president not to be reviewed by the courts. So it's a very new development, um, really a development out of the war on terror cases in the Supreme Court beginning in around 2004, that the judiciary, uh, which used to have no role in national security, now not only has carved a rollout for itself, but actually has a check on the, uh, on the political branches when it comes to these matters. And, you know, I know a lot of people, when they hear that, say, well, you're trying to eliminate due process. The answer to that is not at all. Uh, it's, it is just as inappropriate for the courts to be second-guessing the president and Congress on matters related to border security against potential foreign threats to national security, as it would be for the president to, say, uh, second-guess a, a court on whether a search warrant should have been issued or on whether uh, you know, a breach of contract action should have been uh, settled the way a, a, a court resolved it. Uh, it used to be separation of powers meant that each of the branches respected the expertise and the institutional competences uh, of the other ones uh, and backed off when uh, the responsibilities involved in a dispute were the responsibilities of the other branches. The court doesn't accept that anymore. And I guess secondly, what we see here is a very extravagant understanding of due process imposed by the Ninth Circuit which, for example, holds that uh, even illegal aliens uh, have a right to come to the U.S. courts, whether they're in the United States or not, apparently. Um, yeah, th th this is the part of it, Andy. I just have to jump in here for a second. That I, I read this yeah, last sure. night when the, when the decision was was released, and I I, I, I what I, I don't under, I, I don't know how to say it better. Than that. How does this How does this supposed to work? Well, well, here this is actually uh, worth spending uh, a little bit of time on um you got time go for it the, andy okay the the um in 2001 
The Supreme Court had a case before it, which the Ninth Circuit purported to rely on in this opinion called uh, Zadvidas v. Davis. And what that case involved was uh, aliens who had no right to be in the United States who were deportable and who were stopped at the border. Um, We either have to send them back to a, a different, you know, whatever country they came from or detain them until we can find a country that will take them. But they don't have a right to be in the country. Um, And that was unquestioned for a long time. And the Supreme Court, in a decision written by Justice Breyer, uh, and it's it's basically, you know, the the breakdown of the court of the 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 transnational progressive justices versus the conservative justices. In this instance, the uh, the liberal justices, as it were, um, held that the court could invent a uh, due process right for these illegal aliens or these deportable aliens to seek bail if they were held for too long while uh, the executive branch looked for a country willing to take them. But the court, and this was, by the way, this is what the Ninth Circuit relied on yesterday in saying that the Supreme Court has even recognized that illegal aliens uh, people who are not in this country legally uh, have due process rights. But unlike the Ninth Circuit, the, the Supreme Court in deciding this case was very careful to stress that it was it was not applying this precedent to cases where there was a national security issue or cases that involved uh, the the power of the political branches to keep aliens out of the United States. They stressed that the case that they were uh, deciding didn't raise those issues, didn't have anything to do with those issues, and shouldn't be applied to those issues. And sure enough, here comes the Ninth Circuit uh, doing precisely what the Supreme Court said not to do. And as a result of that, finding not only that uh, illegal aliens might have some small modicum of due process expectation under some unusual set of circumstances, but they had, but that they have full blown due process rights, um, which can actually not only be uh, exercised by them, but by states on their behalf uh, in order to block the political branches of the federal government from performing their essential and most imperative role uh, of protecting the United States against foreign national security threats. It's really, if you if you understand how little the courts had to say about these matters traditionally, and how inflated what the Ninth Circuit did uh, did yesterday is, uh, it really is quite astonishing. So, what does this mean going forward? I mean, using this as precedent, Andy, if you were trying to be a an underhanding uh, underhanded uh, meddling state attorney that had a, had a real love for you know extending rights to to alien alien non U S citizens all over the world uh, where where can this lead I mean based on the jurisprudence that was applied last night in this decision for non U S citizens what would theoretically be open to people that want to come here now I mean they, can they just sue because they're not allowed to come. Well, if I could borrow from um, if I could borrow from a expression of the great uh, uh, John O'Sullivan uh, from years ago, what it essentially means is that uh, uh, every 
human being on planet Earth is an American waiting to happen. Uh, and every one of them, whether or not they seem to have a legal right to come to the United States, has a legal right to come to the United States courts. Uh, and you can't keep them out without acknowledging some kind of a judicial process to keep them out, no matter what their status is. That's how I, I think that's how uh, radical and expansive this holding potentially is, because, look, if you're going to take the position that illegal aliens not only have full blown due process rights, but that those rights can be exercised by third parties on behalf of people who don't have a right to be in the country and whose present here presence here is illegal and nevertheless used to uh, assert it in a way that blocks the representatives of the American people from adopting a policy that protects the country from foreign threats, then, you know, if that's where you're coming from, there's, there's really all bets are off. And there's, I, I wouldn't be able to sit here and tell you that no, that anybody uh, doesn't have a right to, you know, come to the U S courts and say, you got to let me in. So anyone anywhere under the holding last night, and just so I'm clear, and I don't mean to belabor the point, Andy, but it's because I don't want to say things that aren't true, and I know you know this stuff. So some guy who's sitting, some guy who's sitting in Pyongyang right now, who really, I mean, forget about the North Korea. I keep saying North Korea. Forget of the North Korea side of it that you know he doesn't have internet access and wouldn't be able to do this. But whatever, some guy in Tehran would be able to right. say, "Well, I can't get a visa to the United States. I'm unfairly barred. I want to, I want to sue the federal government in a U.S. court." Based on what the Ninth Circuit has done, that individual might have a new right to do that. Is, is that is that all? Yeah, is that all square? Is that right. where we are? Especially if they could find uh, some state attorney general who would say that keeping this person out of the United States uh, is impeding the rich diversity of our university system, which requires you know foreign students and foreign scholars, et cetera. Uh, sure. I mean, and and now that's crazy, right? We could all that that just is insane. I mean, <laughs> I know the left is excited because Trump has been dealt a defeat here, Andy. But right, I mean, no. on a scale of one just, to ten, well, one being this makes perfect yeah. sense constitutionally, ten being this is like Obamacare on steroids in terms of the decision. Where where do you put this? I would put the put it at eleven, which I regard as Ninth Circuit crazy. Okay, so this is next level crazy. I wasn't off on that last night when I read this. I was thinking no, to myself, uh -uh. this is just, this just doesn't make any sense. Well, what do you think the administration right. should do now? Let me ask you that before we got to go into a break here in a couple minutes. What, what do you think they should do? Should they just well, come up with a new executive I, order, or should they take it to SCOTUS? Well, I, I don't think they're going to get to SCOTUS right away, Buck, because this is one of these unusual situations and unfavored ones where the same issue between the same parties was being litigated in two courts at the same time. So as the Ninth Circuit was was resolving or hearing the issue of the temporary restraining order, the district judge in Seattle is proceeding apace with resolving the question whether this temporary restraining order becomes a preliminary injunction. I don't think the Supreme Court would take the case on the temporary restraining order, given that by the time they, you know, had the briefs and, and everything else, the, the district court would have superseded it already by, you know, issuing a preliminary injunction. So I think what the administration has to do is one of two things, either pull the plug on this whole thing uh, 
with the rationale that, you know, we just have our new team in place finally at the Justice Department. We just got the attorney general confirmed. We're finally just going to start filling these slots at the Justice Department. And let's try to do this right. That doesn't mean that we can uh, obviate all of the problems here because the court decisions are obviously wild. Uh, but they could at least minimize or narrow uh, the, the places where they've been attacked uh, by the court, which mainly involves the the chaotic implementation of this order. So I think I would do that. Uh, if that is not what they're going to do, I think what they have to do then is play it out in the district court uh, where the preliminary injunction is probably going to be decided, I'd say, in the next 10 days or so. And then they'll lose in the district court. They'll go back to the Ninth Circuit and lose there. And then they can go up to the Supreme Court on a on a full record. And maybe by then Gorsuch is confirmed. All right. Thank you very much, Andy. Great to have you. Andy McCarthy, everybody of National Review. Read his latest at nationalreview.com. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Andy, always appreciate your expertise, man. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much, Buck. You too. Team, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show all right team buck welcome back to the freedom hut we're joined now by our friend tom rogan he's a domestic and foreign policy writer at national review and a contributor to the mclaughlin group tom thank you so much for joining sorry i missed you the other day at the airport i'm sorry you dropped your fancy sandwich i need to ask you what kind of a sandwich was it it was an Italian sandwich, but I was uh, when when your producer called, I was just trying to shuffle all my different stuff because people were getting on the plane, and I dropped it. And this person across from me, which I thought was quite amusing, the first reaction I looked at this this lady, and she just smiled with a look of pure pleasure at me dropping it, um, uh, which was very odd. Uh, but at the same time, you know these things. She's what you call a Democrat, loose- Tom. But go ahead. Ah, exactly. And we, you know, sometimes we lose people, we lose sandwiches. So, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a tragedy, but you know, I'll get over it. Was there, was there a prosciutto, a prosciutto on your sandwich? You said Italian, you said fancy. It was, there was some pesto and you know, it was, it was oh, very overpriced though, Pros- as airport food is. That was the tragedy. Look at you, you prosciutto eating latte drinker. I like it. All right, Tom. Uh, so <laughs> let's, let's talk, let's talk about, so please trust me. I, I just finished my latte a few minutes before I got on air. I cast, I cast the first stone because I have so many myself. All right. Um, what do we have here? Uh, oh, yes. Why Trump is right. I want to talk a bit. We're getting some national security stuff in a second. We got a load of time here, Tom. But first, Trump and reducing Obama's banking regulations. This is the kind of thing that I feel like people don't get as riled up about as they should, because there are a lot of things that Trump can do in the economy that sound like they're removed from us, but actually will help all of us and, and, and actually help the economy in a meaningful way. And banking regulations is one of them. Tell us about it. Exactly, yes. So my piece, uh, Opportunity Lives on Banking Regulation, is basically making the case that if you dive into a lot of the details of Dodd-Frank beyond, uh, for example, bank capitalization, uh, there are real problems in terms of what those regulations are doing. And and so a couple of specifics would be 
for low-income individuals uh, who don't have the credit rating um, that you know, higher-income individuals have. And that's a far more reluctant to lend to them because not only, as Dodd-Frank said, you should not loan to these people, uh, it imposes a risk penalty on the banks that if that person um, you know, fails to, to pay back their uh, loan or that the, the banks have to pay a potential penalty on that. And then the second point would be um, when we're talking about the idea of social mobility uh, and helping individuals you know, get ahead, because of the regulations that Dodd-Frank puts in in terms of picking uh, winners and losers between the interactions of credit card companies and re- retailers, uh, capping uh, the, the fees that uh, credit card companies traditionally charge to retailers, uh, the banks are pushing uh, that cost onto low-income account holders uh, who don't have the same uh, marginal benefit to the banks anymore. So, that, so from the bank's perspective, if you're a low-level uh, saver, and that's why we're seeing these sort of ATM fees, et cetera, account maintenance fees, is because Dodd-Frank has made uh, poor people, essentially, or less wealthy people, um, marginal cost. Uh, each, each individual is sort of a marginal cost to the bank. And, and it doesn't, it, at a basic economic level, it doesn't make sense. And, it's, uh, and then the extension of that, of course, is that uh, low-income individuals, whether it be a mortgage or a loan, uh, are struggling to access uh, credit and and um, and then the final point I talk about in the piece is the impact on uh, community banks uh, in you know, local towns across the country that traditionally have been you know that you you capital in the community for the community um, and those banks are you know really struggling under Dodd Frank because they do not have uh, the money to pay for the lawyers and accountants to help them navigate this minefield of regulations. What do you think about cutting the corporate tax? That's one of the issues that I I know Trump and the team are looking at right now. Uh, I have not heard anybody who thinks that that anybody outside the sort of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren government revenue is always a good idea camp that I haven't heard anybody who thinks it's a bad idea. No, I think it's a very good idea, but I think it has to be based on the way to do it. I think it's comprehensive tax reform in the sense that. Um, you know, apart from depreciation of capital assets and a, a couple of other things that are really necessary um, in terms of the tax code, we, we just have to do a lot of the loopholes that benefit certain companies also have to come out uh, so that uh, investment flows, uh, that the, the, the invisible hand guides investment to the place of best potential return and that, and that we trust uh, in the economy uh, rather than the ability of politicians uh, through lobbies to pick winners and losers. So, yeah, absolutely, I think we should. I did a piece on Opportunity Lives for this as well. We should cut the corporate tax rate, uh, but simplify it. And, and that is the best way. If Trump, I mean, Trump talks a lot about wanting to, to keep jobs in the United States. That is the best, and I think, frankly, the only way to do it, because, yes, he can say, you know, I'm going to put an t- internal tariff on if companies want to, you know, build something in Mexico and ship it over here. But you know what will happen is those companies will simply get bought by a foreign ownership and completely, you know, their, their tax status will change abroad. So the way to avoid that is to make America, as Trump has said himself, to his credit, uh, the best place in the world uh, to do business. If we do that, you know, we can attract all this capital and we can, you know, in, in the longer term, it gives us an ability to uh, increase employment, get that um, labor participation rate up and, and, and you know, achieve, uh, as Trump would say, great things. But, but it, it's, it's quite basic, but it requires... A resolve from Republicans to say you know, there are not, for example, going to be loopholes for you know, the energy industry. It's just about re- reducing rates and, 
and making sure that every company uh, has an equal opportunity uh, to fight for a profit. What do you think about the decision that came down last night, by the way? We've been talking about it a lot on the show. I just wanted your reaction to it. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's it's silly. I mean, my, look, my I, I I think the ban is a bad idea, but I um, I think if you look at so I went to, to uh, law school in the UK. And I've always been very I love U.S. constitutional law. It's one of my sort of nerdy little interests. But if you look at the precedents in national security related law, um, it is very very strongly um, deferential to the executive, at least at the point of. Uh, administration, which is what was before the court rather than the constitutional merits uh, in question here, um, you know, that that would come on at a future point. So uh, from my perspective, um, you know, the, the, the court ruled the wrong way. And I just I, I think it's a it's you know, I don't I don't, I don't sort of recognize their um, their judgment on that. I think, you know, it's I think it's based in precedent is the wrong decision. And also, do you see last night the report up on Fox News about? I know we're we're jumping around here, Tom, but uh, you're you're a man of of many talents and and lots to say. Um, the uh, idea that we might have to send more troops to Afghanistan. I feel like people have forgotten that we still one have troops in Afghanistan, and two, that war that whatever we're going to call it now. I mean, the overseas U.S. operations to stabilize uh, to stabilize the sovereign state of Afghanistan that is not going very well. Uh, the Taliban's in control yeah. a lot of that country. I'm going to be talking about this more next week. But I, I, this this seems like the press has rediscovered the Afghan war for a moment. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, look, President Obama just put it on the back burner. You know, the war is going to end. And, and the challenge is that the Taliban have been um, taking territory in, 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 uh, in increasing degrees because the Afghan military um, was actually acting very courageously, taking a lot of casualties. But but lacks the kind of um, capability as of yet and support structure to be able to, um, you know, to, to, to do what it needs to do in terms of controlling, I think, the key um, strategic nodes in places like Kalman and Kandahar in the south and the, the Pashtun border areas uh, in the east. And, and so I think that John Nicholson, who I believe is the um, commander there, is going to request, you know, the, he's the one requesting these additional troops. And I think I think Trump should do it. And I think, you know, the main reason is, again, this is like Iraq 2011. And if we can have those troops there providing that kind of you know, advisory role, uh, but also, you know, sometimes yeah, going towards the front as embeds, it signals it does two things. It brings capability to give the Afghans time to, to build their own forces to be able to take over. Um, but it also gives us leverage in the political negotiations with the Taliban uh, towards a potential deal because it shows the Taliban that we're not cutting and running. Um, and so I think, you know, the lesson of Iraq would be that in, in a way that takes into consideration that this is a you know, willingness of Americans to take more casualties and um, that, we, that we use our national power uh, towards a positive, you know, strategic effect. And I think we can do that. Here. Are you a John Wick fan, by the way? You know, I watched the first one. I didn't really like it. I thought it was kind of boring. I, I, I preferred Taken um, as that kind of thing. And, you know, that like inglorious bus. I don't know. John Wick, I just I didn't identify with him as much as I was hoping I would. I like Constantine. That's I hear a- you. That, that's not your jam. I just saw the uh, the trailer for John Wick, too. So I was wondering if we could get to a, a consensus on whether that's worth seeing or not. Sounds like you're you're not you're not loving it, though. No, no. I've You know, I'm I've. 
you know, I like I like some stuff like that, but I um, Don Wick, um, you know. Yeah, I just, I just, I just thought it was kind of. So you like Taken, where you have a an Irish guy in his sixties who uh, is able to beat up like dozens of guys with his bare hands at once because he was in the CIA at some point. That's it's quite a storyline when you put it in that context. And I also think you know the um, the Equalizer. I I very much enjoyed that one, Denzel Washington. Um, I think that was much better. There's a great. Do you see that one? No, is is, it, is that sort of like the uh, man on fire where he is just yeah, like running around getting it. revenge? It's it's it's, it's really it's, it's it's superb. I think the storyline is good as well, and and that to me is like a better version of John Wick. I mean, it is action movie quote Friday. I don't know if you even know that, Tom. So we take action movie quotes from people that are listening to the oh, show. Uh, what is for you? Your you can give me either your top three or just best all time action movie. Best all time action movie. Um, uh, well, I, I love. I've always loved In the Line of Fire. Um, I like. Um, wow, that's a that's a that was not a kid random. I would have guessed. Okay, what else? Yeah, because um, yeah, of a mix of patriotism and sort of humor. And um, the longest day, I think, is a great one. Um, and yeah, you put me on the spot here. You're going, um, way, you're going way outside the box here. I don't even know what the longest day is. Well, 1962 Second World War movie. I bet a lot of your listeners will know what it is. You should educate yourself. Oh, I'm sure. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm remiss on this one, but I'm just saying. I, I don't even know. That. Yeah, 1962, uh, 1962 epic war film uh, based on the book The Longest Day. Okay, I got to check that one out. Right. Yeah, and then maybe I don't know. You know, the third one. I'm, you know, I do enjoy. Um, maybe even The Equalizer. I have to say, I, I think that's about the Russian mob, and there's a, you know, there's a great sort of scene where he goes into the mob. Uh, room and and the, the moral narrative narrative is very strong there uh, in the movie and but there's there's there are, it's it's very cleverly uh, done uh, movie so that those three would probably be my uh, good safe pick. All right, Tom Rogan, our friend, he is a foreign policy and domestic policy writer at National Review, contributor to the McLaughlin Group. Tom R tweets is how you follow him on Twitter and check out his column up on OpportunityLives.com. Tom, I owe you a sandwich still, but thank you very much for calling in, my friend. It was great to have you. Have a good weekend. You don't. You too. Thanks a lot, Puck. <laughs> All right. Take care. Uh, team phone lines are open. We can take some calls on the other side. Uh, 888-900-3393, and we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, our lines are open here, 888-900-3393. Uh, we have Jeremy in North Carolina calling him. What's up, Jeremy? How's it going, Buck? Um, I don't have any uh, action movie quotes for you today, but I did want to kind of weigh in on the uh, court decision last night and the fact that it appears they've given standing to non-citizens in U.S. courts. And what I'm afraid of is this could unleash a, a flood, the floodgates of organizations such as CARE um, filing lawsuits in U.S. courts on behalf of uh, combatants who have had warheads dropped on their foreheads. 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where this goes. I mean, I was trying to get a sense of that with Andy before. Um, I do believe that this will be, uh, well, that's actually interesting. I, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of whether it's going to get pushed up to the Supreme Court or not. I think the savvier political move for the administration may be to just come up with a new executive order or just go with extreme vetting and uh, move on from this. I know some are suggesting that. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'm just not I'm not clear on uh, what what the future is going to hold here. It, it does, to me, at least seem to create a right that did not exist before, which is or, or a, a due process. Right. That now, as Andy said, you, you are if you're anywhere in the world, you have a case to make that you should be able to make your case in a U.S. federal court. that You have standing in a U.S. federal court. You have access to the U.S. judiciary. Well, that that's exactly. that's not a good thing. That's not something that we want. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know what happens now. I mean, the decision is just is just crap. And by the way, one thing I didn't mention and I should have is that they also in their in their decision released last night mentioned the comments of Donald Trump from the campaign trail as whether or not that's indicative that there was an underlying hope to, you know, hope to uh, ban or persecute Muslims. If, if if statements made external to a law are going to determine whether a law is constitutional or not, we're in a lot of trouble. Because uh, oh, now yeah. you can just pick and choose anything you want to add in to a case, uh, and, and a court can just say, well, this is the, the law on its face is not, is not a problem from a constitutional perspective, but you know, there, there are some dumb people saying dumb things about it somewhere, so we have to change the way that we view it. That's a really dangerous precedent to set, I think. Yeah, it, 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 it's a scary day and time we're living in. I mean, with what's been going on in the Ninth Circus, I mean, and the the overriding of the Constitution by the judiciary is just taking us that much closer to what I'd consider a constitutional crisis. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's if this continues, Jeremy, with the judiciary acting as the primary break on the executive's agenda on issues that the plain language of them, you know, I know people are going to say, well, look what happened with Obama. Whoa. Are you, are you okay? What happened? No, I'm here. Oh, all right. Sounds like you're on the highway or something. Jeremy, North Carolina, good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for calling in. Shield tie. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where this is what we get into now is the, is, is the judiciary is the primary weapon against, against the Trump agenda. Where does that stop? Um, and, and if plain language of the statute isn't going to govern where they think they can weigh in and where they can't, well, then we, we will have a constitutional crisis at some point. I mean, I've already brought this up. What happens if Trump comes out with another executive order that changes the language to address this and then tells the executive branch, OK, well, here's a new executive order. Uh, the court can't find him in contempt for issuing a new executive order that's different. Um, and is the court really going to find the president in contempt? I don't think so. Uh, but maybe they would. I don't know. Um, and they, now you start getting into getting you start getting into finding yourself outside of what has been normative in the past and what our expectations are for how all this is going to work. So I, I just I don't know. It strikes me as uh, very concerning. And I think that the Obama administration uh, was able to get away with a lot more because the press was always just complicit in its agenda. And now we're at a point where the opposite is the case, where the Trump administration, if the press has its way, won't get away with anything. But that, that may be a problem. At some point, it will impinge on government 
functions, and that's going to be a real issue. So we'll have to see. I mean, it, the, right now, isn't it fascinating? Uh, for the eight years of Obama, the executive branch was the most powerful branch of the government, and now it's starting to feel like maybe the judiciary is. Um, I guess the executive still has a lot of authority, but the point here is just what, why does the Congress even bother to write write new laws? If the executive can just make it up as it goes along, and then the judiciary can say yay or nay to whatever the executive does. Anyway, very frustrating, uh, very uh, disheartening to see to see this. And it, at least if this was sort of just relegated to the realm of politics, I'd feel a little bit better about it. But as we all know, if you are a Trump supporter, you are now a target for scorn in social settings and professional settings all around the country. And I don't even mean a Trump supporter in the sense of you're a super Trumper. I just mean you're like, yeah, I, I want to. I hope the president to say now in a lot of places in this country, I hope the president is successful and, and is able to help America out and do good things is to invite heaps of scorn on yourself. And that's really troubling in and of itself. Uh, we've got a little uh, we got a little break here and then we're going to have a lot more for you. 888-900-3393 team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Everybody, we're joined by Matt Walsh. He's an author at The Blaze and at themattwalshblog.com. His latest is, if you find it easy to be a Christian, you probably aren't one. It's up on theblaze.com right now. Also, listen to the Matt Walsh podcast. Mr. Walsh, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so, what do, you, what, do you think about, what do you think about this week in, in Trump's America? Let's just start real broad, and then we'll dig down, and we'll talk about your piece. And also, you got a book coming out. We'll talk about that in, in a second. What do you think about this week in, in the new America we're living in? Well, um, you know, of course, it gets more entertaining in one aspect by, by the day. So that's maybe the uh, the positive end of it. I would, If I were to grade, I, I don't know how long we can keep grading each of Trump's weeks, but uh, I thought his first two he did he did relatively well. I thought this was a, a bad, just a bad week for him all around. Um, obviously, we know about the, the ruling last night, which, which didn't go his way, but but uh, some of his less desirable tendencies have come to the foreground more this week, or maybe it's simply that you know when he's when he's when he's winning, as he likes to say, he can get away with a lot. He can get away with being Trump, but when he's not winning, uh, the Trump Act wears thin on those on those who has already not worn thin on already, um, and so maybe that's what's happening. But I, I think he, he's 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 got to he's got to recover because the, the leftists have, have gained a lot of ground. Uh, on him this week, and, uh, and it could be could be heading in a bad spot if he doesn't recover from this. Now, Matt, I know you wrote your piece here. If you find it easy to be a Christian, you probably aren't one. And, and, I, and I read it, and I would recommend to everybody listening right now to go check it out on TheBlaze.com uh, right now. I, I want to ask you, I, I see that, and you deal with this a lot more than I do because you, you write on, on Christian issues. Um, I, I see people on, on the social media who love to sort of, the only time they they cite Christianity is usually in reference to like Obamacare or paying uh, you know uh, or welfare programs and I have to pay taxes to support them. <laughs> Essentially, the Christianity is an excuse for people on social media to pull out their their inner 
Catholic Marxist or something, but then they reject all the rest of it. Am I imagining that, or do you see that a lot too? Yeah, I think that's certainly that's certainly what happens with, uh, and it, that's not just something that happens on the left, by the way. It's a left and right. It's a, it's a problem across the board that we have uh, our culture has presented Christianity as a kind of collection of sentiments and cliches and bumper sticker slogans, uh, all very pleasant, you know. And so people have adopted that, and they figure that if they kind of vaguely feel that, oh, yeah, well, people should be taken care of and the government should do it. It's always the government doing it, by the way. Um, that's, that's the common thread in this kind of false Christianity we see in our culture, is that we think, okay, well, if we feel certain ways about people and we generally think that people should be taken care of, that makes us Christian. But we don't have to do it ourselves. It's we, we, let, we just step back and we let other people do it. Um, it's all of the personal moral obligation of Christianity has been stripped away from it. And once you do that, you've taken away Christianity, because Christianity is, a, it's a, um, in a certain sense, it's a personal faith. It's something that you yourself must believe and partake in. You can't, you can't uh, <clears throat> just step back and, and hope that the collective take care, takes care of it. You have to do it yourself, and we've taken that away from Christianity, and I think stripped of stripped it of, of all of its meaning in the process. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned in your piece that what is it, eighty percent of Americans identify as Christian, but but clearly there's a disconnect because if, if one is a is a a believing, and I don't even know how to a believing traditional Christian, that would mean uh, that you'd have to be uh, pro traditional marriage, pro life. You go down the line. And the statistics don't line up there. So for a lot of people, it must then just be what a, a sort of nominal cultural Christian that you know, it, it's about the what is it the, the Jesus fish bumper stickers and the golden rule and uh, giving stuff to poor people via the government. That's really what Christianity for a lot of people boils down to now. Yeah, it's great. we are still in some ways a Christian in custom, in custom country just because you still see the uh, Christmas lights all over the place, and you do see the Jesus bumper stickers, and people talk about the Golden Rule. But the interesting thing is with the Golden Rule, uh, you know, doing to others as you would have them doing to you, if you take God out of that, if you take if you take uh, Christ out of that equation, then it becomes a selfish kind of interaction where, well, you're being nice to people so that they will be nice to you in return. Um, and so it's more of a business interaction. It's not actually compassion. But when you add God back into it, then we realize that we're supposed to serve others because, because that's what we're commanded to do, and because Christ is in is in other people, so we're serving Christ in the process. So yeah, I think we, we've we've uh, that's what it's become. And in fact, there was a a couple days ago there was a study done that showed vast majorities of Christians in in all, in all almost all churches and denominations um, not only endorse gay marriage, which isn't a surprise. But also endorse uh, the government taking measures to uh, make sure that business owners, you know, are, aren't aren't allowed to exercise their religious liberty. That bakers and and all, and all that sort of thing. So we ha- we have Christians who have not only abandoned the theological teachings in, in, in scripture, but are also abandoning religious liberty entirely. So it's just a uh, it's a ridiculous situation. What did you think of the? Uh, I see you, you tweeted about this uh, about people blocking Betsy, uh, blo- protesters blocking Betsy DeVos uh, from entering a DC school. 
Um, what, what did you think of the whole DeVos, De, uh, DeVos debacle that played out and finally needed a Pence tie-break maneuver in the Senate? I, I saw yes, I mentioned yesterday on my show that uh, you've got people that are now thre- threatening to homeschool their kids because of DeVos. It's like, well, I guess she's more successful than anybody realized. Yeah, yeah. If that's if that's where this goes, I'm a big advocate of homeschooling. So I, I, I fully endorse that. If you really are terrified now of what's going to happen in the public schools, and you think that the Department of Education is now a, a force of destruction in American culture, which it, it, I think it has been, it always has been. So yeah, pull your kids out of homeschooling. I think it's a great thing to do. Um, I, you know, as far as DeVos goes, I don't. You know, I, I think she's her uh, feelings on and endorsement of Common Core is sort of a dubious aspect of it so i wasn't a fan of that but my my opinion I, i'm not I don't, you know i'd be fine with just getting rid of the department of education and so to whatever extent appointing her brings us closer to that eventuality then i'm i'm completely in favor of it and i you know i, I just don't see and, and i haven't heard a cogent argument as to why the federal government needs to be involved in education why these things can't be handled on a local basis anyway and these protesters now i i just don't understand I mean, this has been going on for you know years, of course. But why aren't they? Why aren't the cops showing up with buses and just arresting everybody and and taking them to jail? I mean, when when you have this kind of uh, rampant lawlessness going on, you, you can't go to a school and you know block a woman from entering who needs to do her job. You can't do that. Isn't that against the law? Why aren't there cops showing up and and enforcing the law in these cases? I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. Yeah, I don't understand this either, this conflation of speech and protest with I get to prevent you from using public roadways when I feel like it. I get to throw a tantrum. I think people should be – there was a story, got very little play, by the way, where protesters recently, I think, prevented somebody having a heart attack in an ambulance from actually getting to the hospital. Uh, this can have serious consequences. I, I forget who it was. Somebody said that Chris Christie was like guilty of mass murder because of the Bridgegate scandal. So sometimes they get very outraged about about traffic and slowing people down. Uh, but I, I I don't understand when we made this switch to, and I saw back in the old Occupy Wall Street days firsthand, that you can lie down in, in the street, you can lie down on a highway, and everybody can be trapped in their vehicles for hours because you want to act like a, a, a jackass. I just don't understand. Why does anyone think this is okay? Yeah, I, I can't come to any conclusion other than it really depends on your politics. The, the law is enforced depending on your politics. Because you know, speaking of blocking people or whatever, uh, think about the law. A lot of people don't realize how many laws there are surrounding um, abortion clinics. And if you want to go to an abortion clinic and exercise your First Amendment rights to protest, not only can you not stand on the private property, but there are, I mean, they, they, will, they will even, in many states, Anyway, there are laws, you know, giving like a 50-yard buffer zone between private property and where you're allowed to stand with a sign. And if you infringe on that for even a second, the cops will be there and, and you're, you're getting hauled off to jail. Um, so it's in that case, it's the laws it, very, very strictly enforced. Um, but, yeah, you, you, can, you can shut down an entire highway system, apparently, if you protest Trump. Or you can go to a school and stop a, a woman from, from, from walking in to do her job. So it's... Hard for me to see it as anything other than just, uh, you know, unequal under the law, depending on what your politics are. And Matt, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your your book that's coming out, or do we have to hold that for another time? Well, I mean, if you have time, I always like to. Yeah, we got, we, we, we got a couple. Why don't we do a little? Just give us a preview now for a couple minutes because we're going to run into a break. But we'll have you back to talk about it when it's ready to release. Obviously, but what what's the what's the overview? 
Yeah, well, the, the book is kind of tying together a lot of themes that I've uh, talked about in my writing over the last few years. But discussing the left's attempts, um, it, it's, it's assault on our culture. And the way that it assaults our culture, as we know, is by redefining these uh, foundational principles of human civilization. And so we know they began by redefining human life in the womb through abortion. Uh, the next step was to redefine marriage, and they succeeded in that. And now the third, uh, the, th- the third element of this, which completes the kind of unholy trinity of attacks that I, that I talk about in the title, is their assault on, on gender and trying to redefine gender. And if we allow them to get away with it, and they, they largely have already, unfortunately, then they have reshaped human civilization in their image, and they've, they've redefined everything, and they've in, in, instituted uh, relativism as the you know guiding force in our civilization. So my, my book is kind of talking about that, equipping people with some arguments and, and how, to, how to deal with it, and then sort of talking about you know, what's our, what do we do, given the fact that we live in a culture where this is already happening and they've made so many inroads, where do we go from there? So that's what the book kind of gets into. Well, one, real, one quick one for you, Matt, and then we'll let you get, get going on, on your weekend and everything else you got going on. Uh, I'm always amazed at how people that don't know anyone who is transgender and are not transgender themselves take it upon themselves to act like they are a civil rights hero for snapping at people for using the wrong pronoun. W- what is that all about? Well, it's just an easy, uh, it's just a really, it's kind of what we were talking about at the, the beginning of the conversation. It's an easy form of morality, I guess, for them. They feel like um, they can be, you know, tolerant. They can, they can be the kind of white knight saviors for, for transgenders. Uh, and when it comes to the transgender argument, the vast, vast majority of the people who are on the other side, the quote-unquote approach and transgender side of it, are not transgender themselves. They probably don't know many transgender people. How many transgender people exist in the country? It's, you know, less than 0.1% probably, and certainly less than 1%, probably less than 1%. So, yeah, most of this is, is, is this argument is pushed forward by people who, you know, not only don't know transgenders, but up until just a few years ago, they didn't care about the issue at all. And they only recently decided to care about it, um, which is another interesting aspect of, the, of it. Matt Walsh is, the author, is an author at The Blaze and at the mattwalshblog.com. Follow him on Twitter, everybody, if you're not already. And uh, we look forward to your book, Matt. Thanks for, for calling in. We'll talk to you more about it when it gets closer. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Have a good weekend. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. As you know, I'll be on radio tonight for three hours from 6 to 9 Eastern. Uh, you can tune in live by going to AmericanHourRadio.com. And if you missed last night's show, please go to America, AmericanHourRadio.com slash podcast. Uh, you can listen to it all there. And uh, it's really, on, honestly, especially given the uh, workload these days and just a lot of stuff going on, having uh, having Team Buck call in and support me in the new show is a uh, very appreciated and really meaningful and and that's what keeps me fired up to keep pushing through doing now five, five hours of uh, five hours of live radio a day which is which is a lot it's not like i get to play you know uh country music uh, you know every every couple of minutes and then just sort of sit back and chill and then come back i get to talk for uh, a lot of that five hours but anyway it is really appreciated and, and it brings a smile on my face every time 
the call screener puts something up and it says, you know, so-and-so wants to tell you, you know, congrats and shields high. I'm like, ah, it's one of the teams. So thank you all so much for that. Uh, it, it is very meaningful and, and it is very appreciated. Uh, on, a, on a sort of fun moment or a light moment for a second here, uh, Shia LaBeouf, uh, whom I find is, is kind of the Colin Farrell of, of his generation and that Colin Farrell kind of ruins every movie he's in. I know that's harsh, but it's true. And if you look back at most Colin Farrell movies, uh, especially the big budget movies, you're like, wow, he's horribly miscast and does a bad job. Uh, and he's been in some real, real clunkers. And he was in that, wasn't he in that Alexander the Great movie that just bombed? Yeah. So and Alexander the Great is such an amazing story, and it was such a, such a bad movie. Uh, but Shia LaBeouf, I think, is the same thing. I think he ruins every movie he's in. Uh, even Transformers, which is a giant CGI mishmash of, of, of crap. And he has been <laughs> he's been out in Brooklyn for a while now uh, doing this. He will not divide us live stream cam protest. And if you haven't seen the video of it, it's it's worth checking out just because you're like, what is this guy's deal? I mean, he's a, a famous actor, which doesn't mean anything about his character or his intellect or anything else. But he is a famous actor. And, uh, you know, he's doing this weird live stream protest thing. And finally, the Museum of the Moving Image in Brooklyn shut it down. And TMZ has this funny, this funny thing where they have the live stream up and it says the museum has abandoned us at, at he will not divide us dot us. So so he may not divide us, but the museum will abandon us. Apparently, uh, I just I don't know. I, I wish I had the time and the. It's sort of bizarre self-assurance to think that I should do a live stream of me chanting in the street for no reason for many, many hours and that this is somehow making America a better place. I wish. I'm working on a team. Be sure to join me tonight. We'll have fun on Friday night, 6 to 9 Eastern on American Now with Buck Sexton. Go to AmericanNowRadio.com and check that out and download today's show. Shields high, everyone. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.